Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome, everyone, and I welcome my guest today, Ned Bacchus. I wanted to tell you a little bit about, I was inspired to have Ned on the show because of the themes that are in his book called Mortal Things. And one of the themes, and we'll be talking about this and more, is about grief. And I think in our country today, many people are experiencing grief for many reasons. And someone said to me long ago, grief is the price we pray for love. And I think you'll hear us talk about um, grief connection and love within the novel that Ned that Ned wrote. I want to say a little bit about him. And I found out before when we were getting ready for airtime that Ned had been a counselor be, before becoming a teacher um, at a community college of Philadelphia, where he has won many teaching awards. But Ned also has written other, other books. He wrote a collection of short stories called The City of Brotherly Love, which was awarded the 2013 Independent Publisher gold medal for literary fiction. He he is the recipient of two fellowships from the Pennsylvania Council of the Arts, um, which his um, 2017 book, Open Admissions, What Teaching at a Community College Taught Me About Learning, was the product of nearly four decades. That's a long time of teaching. And we were talking also about the importance of community college being a bridge to learning and for people to go from there to more advanced education. I was sharing with him that people in our family started out in community college and ended up with master's degrees. So also a little bit about that he was born in Quebec and raised in Philadelphia. He now lives in Camden, Maine, but he's now visiting his grandchild in New Jersey. And we both have grandchildren. So we talked about the loveliness of that. But Mortal Things was published by a Tree of Life Books in October of 2022. And we're going to start talking about this right now. So, so Ned, um, I wanted to share with you, and I asked your permission if this was okay, before I really start asking you some questions, what two different people have said about your book. Hmm. And the first one is that Ned Bacchus's compulsively readable novel, Mortal Things, is a gorgeously written portrait of human friendship and all its longing and connection and loss. It's set in diverse Philadelphia neighborhood. The city is rendered so vividly, you'll feel like you're there. And Bacchus's writing displays such great depth and intelligence and sensitivity, all of which makes this novel wonderfully immersive. The book is profoundly moving and entertaining with wry humor and knowing insights on display on every resonant page. That was written by Susan Conley. And with an acute, the next one is with an acute sense of place and insightful characterization, Ned Bacchus captures the long lasting ripple effects of chance meetings. And we're going to talk about serendipity, I know, in a little bit, unspoken truths and the losses haunting our lives. Class divides of late 1980s Philadelphia are are much needed connection in an atomized society and how our sorrows can drive us to the unexpected are all masterfully explored and atmospheric and powerful debut novel with deep emotional impact. And that was written by Marjan Kamali. So Ned, welcome to the show. 
Oh, thank you. And as we get started, I wanted to ask you, so what prompted you to become a novelist? Here you have such a rich background in so many different areas and to bring these themes that we're going to be discussing in greater detail. So what was it that said, hey, I think I could write a novel. I'm going to do this. Well, writing a novel is one thing. I think before, sort of underneath that, uh, is the, the the drive to just tell stories. And uh, in, you know, whether in ordinary life with relation, you know, in friendships and families and things like that, or, you know, more formally in, uh, in other, in literary forms or musical forms or what, whatever. Um, and that has always been there. I wasn't always, I didn't always see myself as an author, a writer, but uh, I did fairly early. But uh, I think before that, I had, the nature of my life was such that um, I think in a way it would have been hard not to. It was, it was an unusual start. Um, my parents were essentially star-crossed lovers, if you will. They were married and divorced uh, in short order. Uh, he was uh, in the American military, had grown up on a farm in Oklahoma. My mother was uh, a, a young woman from Quebec, and uh, they they met and uh, fell in love. And uh, and as I said, the whole thing was was kind of over before very long. They were divorced when I was very young, and um, in the course. And so my mother quickly became a single mother, and really right from the start. I was born in Quebec, but uh, she went to Oklahoma, tried to work things out. Uh, that didn't happen. Went back to Quebec, went back to Oklahoma. And then when he went, you know, brought on the divorce, she basically, uh, she headed west on her own, completely on her own, and um, looked for work she could get, uh, maybe taking care of a, a rich family's child where she could also take care of me. And I know those were those were kind of the missing years, if you will. I only have scant details about uh, what exactly happened and where we were. I know she was in Phoenix for a little while, then Los Angeles briefly, then in Indiana with another young uh, woman that she she knew from from Quebec, and then um, outside of New York City, and then. Um, another serendipitous thing ended up in Philadelphia. I won't go through all of that, but, uh, and there it was time for me to start school and that pretty much planted us. And uh, she worked as a, a waitress in a coffee shop uh, and somehow uh, raised me, did a great job. We, uh, we, we were certainly poor by measures that you would, used to evaluate such things, but I never, I never felt poor because she created a really good life for me, sent me to good schools and, um, huh. and cared for me deeply. But in those first years, even in those first months, um, I, I, it, I was in all sorts of environments. I was in Northern Quebec for a while, then in Oklahoma. And I, I, Different I know. places. I've been to, you know, I've been to parts of the country and I've been to Quebec and 
that would be very different than Oklahoma. Oh my goodness. It, yes. um, yeah, it was, it was, it, I mean, I, I tell people that I, in those first months, first front months and years, I was, I was subjected to all sorts of accents and languages and all kinds of different people. And then in Philadelphia, um, she, she rented an apartment. We were apartment dwellers, of course. And, uh, and that was a series, I think, I forget how many we were in. It was an incredible number of, of apartments in, um, but during the course of my education, like, so it was, it sounds like there was always this thread that she loved you deeply and she would care for you. Was that, is that a true statement? Oh yeah. There, there's no question. She was an extraordinary mother. Uh, I've written stories where the mother is quite not that is <laughs> very much the opposite, but, um, that was all imagination because I, I felt I was incredibly blessed. I had a rich, uh, childhood in, uh, in every way except monetary. And, uh, and that matters. It makes a big difference. Can matter. And also, you know, when you say that she kind of knew that she needed to settle when you started school, not everybody knows that even if you were living in different mm. residents, but you were all, you were in Philadelphia. So yeah. that's the place where you, you were rooted. But I also think she must have been somewhat of an adventuresome person too, to go to all those different places. Was she, at, or could you remember that part of her? Well, she was indomitable. Uh, she was, <laughs> she was, uh, she just refused to lose. She just, um, didn't spend any money on herself. Uh, it, I knew that growing up, I realized that, uh, and I real and I understood the extent of what that meant mm. later as I grew older and realized, holy cow, how, how did she do that? That was extraordinary. So I knew she had quite a story uh, and became, and I became close to my relatives in Quebec. Um, occasionally we would visit in the summer when she could scrape together enough money for us to take the, the train up. Uh, we never had a car. Actually, I got a car in my senior year of college, but uh, she never learned to drive. We took the, the trolley or the bus, um, it, it, the subway to, to work, to school and all that. Uh, but in the course of those moves from one apartment to the other, we were around all sorts of people. So I was, I was raised in a situation where I had just an enormous range of, of people that I dealt with. So I, I think anybody exposed to that kind of richness of people, uh, there's probably a better, than, <laughs> a better than even chance that they're going to be struck by that and maybe want to write about it. Well, and, and imagine and stories that you heard from this amazing range of people that you met as well. Mm -hmm. And they were, there was a diverse group of people, uh, really, in every sense of the word diversity. Um, it was pretty, I felt, again, looking back, I feel very privileged that I had that experience. Well, as so I wonder if we can segue now into telling us a little bit about mortal things. And can you give us a, a, a like a, a brief synopsis of what the novel is about? Yeah, I, I, let, let me read what's right on the, the jacket. And, you know, just the a few sentences that that sort of captures the who, what, where, when kind of thing, if if that's okay. That's fine. Yes. The book is set in the the neighborhood in which I grew up and eventually uh, settled with uh, my wife when we raised our two children in the same neighborhood, uh, not 
10 blocks from where I, from those little apartments where I grew up as a child. Mount Airy, Philadelphia, 1989. Sarah Goins, a college professor with a thriving career and close-knit academic community, is eager to draw her boyfriend, Mike Flanagan, deeper into her world. But Mike, a groundskeeper at a local seminary, resists instead keeping her at arm's length as he struggles to come to terms with a past haunted by loss. Late one night, Mike crosses paths with Dominic Gallo, a neighborhood barber who has been injured in a mugging. As Mike helps the elderly man, Dominic tends to his own painful history, and the two strike up an unlikely friendship built around mutual understanding of each other's grief. When outside forces drive Mike and Sarah further apart, Sarah seeks out Dominic in an attempt to salvage her floundering relationship. Like Mike, she is drawn into the world of Dominic's barbershop and the new sense of community it offers. And that's, that sort of captures this, the when, the where, and all that, and, and the who. It, the novel follows three protagonists, the, the, the folks I mentioned, Sarah Goins, who's 30-ish woman teaching, originally from New York City, uh, very excited about being a young teacher in Philadelphia. Mike Flanagan uh, grew up in this same neighborhood and um, experienced the um, horrible loss of his young wife and young child some several years back, several years ago. And Dominic Gallo, who came over from Italy, is 75, uh, has seen some tough years and 10 years ago lost his beloved wife. And um, these, these, what happens is that Mike meets Dominic and then Sarah meets Dominic. And then what we have is there's, there's only basically one scene in the, in the novel where all three individuals are in the same room at the same time. However, the, the three sets of two, the, the three dyads or couples, uh, Dominic and Mike, Dominic and Sarah, Sarah and um, Dominic, those relationships just start developing and gathering steam. And, uh, and the novel's told from the point of view of each of those three people. So we see them interacting and the reader gets to, gets to know a little more than what the characters in a scene know because they know the background. They know even what the person who's not the point of view character in a chapter knows because they've been in that person's head. Well, and I think that's an, the other question. Um, it's kind of a series of questions that they each have a backstory and that is informing who they are in the present moment. Mm -hmm. So what were you kind of trying to convey about the way our, our experiences shape us with this expression in the novel? Well, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I didn't set out trying to do anything other than tell the story. I, I wanted to, to, I mean, these characters basically showed up hmm. and I wanted to get to know them as well as I could. And then did the, the classic fiction writer thing, which is ask yourself the question, what if, and just threw in a possibility and then let it happen and, and waited to see what, what well, would. 
what would happen. I have to ask you this question because you said they showed up. So I was just watching a program on television, uh, James Cameron, you know, who's done all these amazing films. And he talked about how his dreams were the fodder of many of the screenplays that he's written. And I'm thinking, how interesting is that, right? You Mm -hmm. dream and you wake up. So when you say they showed up, how was that? Was it when you wrote or was it a dream? How did they show up? I'm sure we have budding novelists out there that are thinking, hmm, I better pay attention to that dream or that experience, because that certainly, you know, was something that was uh, mm-hmm. something that influenced you, for example. I, I can only speak for myself, and, and I, I don't offer this as any uh, suggestion that it might be the norm for anybody else. It just, I can just say, well, this is what happened to me. Uh, and good luck because, you know, I think there are so many different ways people approach this. Um, but I just, I think because of that experience that I lived with, that I grew up with, I hmm. knew the people. I lived in so many, so many different places in a few different neighborhoods that I had a really good sense of the kinds of people that you'd find there. And as I said, it was diverse. It was socioeconomically diverse, ethnically, racially, in all those ways, it was diverse. And I got to know all those people. So I could picture if I, you know, I imagine the door down the street opening, I could picture what kind of person might come out. And I let myself do that. I just imagined what kind of person might live there. What's their background? And well- I'm kind of intrigued. I let them take over. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm kind of intrigued by the character of Dominic, you know, being 75. And it sounds like his, I mean, so can you tell me more about him and how you wrote him? Was he a composite of many people that you knew? Or was there a, a wise old soul that lived in the neighborhood since you not only lived there, but, you know, actually stayed there and raised your family there? No, I, I wouldn't say any of them are composites or or any closer to individuals I knew. I just, you know, I could just, I just sort of, it was almost like I had a, a, a sighting of some, you know, I glanced somebody walking out a door and I got to follow them. Where are they going? Where are they going to work? Oh, I see. And I just let my imagination go from there, knowing, having had, great experience, you know, a great background of experience, all kinds of folks, you know, funny people, quirky people, strange people, decent, kind people, mean people, uh, just, you know, was, was familiar with that. And I, I let them go. Dominic just, uh, he just absolutely showed up. My, I would say Mike and Mike and Sarah showed up as a couple, which is interesting because they're not a really good cop. I mean, <laughs> all through their life, all through their history together, uh, it's been kind of on again, off again. And it's more something that Sarah is hoping for. And it's something Mike is taking a chance with and putting his best foot forward with. Uh, but he's so damaged from the loss of yeah, his of wife and, uh, and little boy that, um, that it, it, he's only able to do so much. Uh, with the relationship, but he, well, he enjoys it for what it is. Well, so then I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm just wondering that the kind of piggybacking on what you just said is that they're all intertwined, these three um, individuals. So when you, and also, yeah, and you also are talking about the creative process. So when you started, you didn't necessarily know 
how it was going to happen? Because I know that some people that write, like they actually will do an outline. This is what my ending is going to be. But it sounds like you really went with that kind of intuitive, creative process to see, as you say, how they showed up. And I kept asking the what if question. And it started with what is now the first full chapter, the first two full chapters. That was as a, that was a short story. And uh, that is something I started working on in the mid to late 80s. So the gestation period for this novel is ridiculously long. It's Over many years. Long. Over many I'm sorry? Years. Over many years and many developmental stages of your own life. Roughly 38 years. I mean, this is not a process I recommend to anyone, of course. (laughs) It's just that's the trail that it took. And the same thing is true for the other books I've written. They had long gestation periods, but this is the longest. This is, you know, it's this is not something that is the product of a business plan if you will. Well, I mean, isn't that interesting that sometimes the things that have the greatest meaning for us as human beings are the things that, that kind of just appear that we hadn't planned on this happening. And all of a sudden here it is. So it sounded to me that when it came to you, you kept working on it, even though it was a 38 year journey, it didn't stop. Right. And to, to be clear, it's not like this is what I did for 38 years. No, no, I realized that you had other jobs. Yes. I'm, yes. I'm teaching and was never able to write during the academic year. As soon as the semester started, I just, I needed to pay full attention to that. Um, but this was something I did in the summers. Once I'd taken care of other things, painting the dining room and, you know, doing this and that and organizing my courses for the next year. Um, then I turned to one of my writing projects. Might yeah. be the collection of stories, might be this novel, might be another novel that I'm about to go back to again. Um, well, so it, it sounds was, like these characters were like going, don't forget about us, Ned. We, we have something to say. I mean, it's almost like you couldn't right. leave them alone. Well, the, 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 the fortunate thing for me is that when I would pick up one of those manuscripts uh, in the beginning of a summer's work, um, they were there. They, they hadn't gone away. I, I recognized them. I knew who they were and I worked. Uh, they, you know, they, I, they were there for me. And I, I kept letting the, the story show itself to me. But I trusted the characters. That, they, that, that would happen. So let me ask you this. Um, can you comment on the meaning of the book's title, Mortal Things? Well, it's a translation of a, a passage from the Aeneid that I've always really liked. And it, mortal things touch the mind and there are tears for such things. Hmm. And, uh, and I thought, wow, yeah, really <laughs> there are there. indeed. But then there's also the other epigraph that, that I chose, which I'll read to you. It's from a poem by Linda Paston, who recently passed away. When my griefs sing to me, from the bright throats of thrushes, I sing back. And that to me suggests a certain defiant optimism. And, uh, and the book is very much about three survivors, three people who have gone through very tough things. And I think the question that readers kind of pick up is, are they going to make it? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, 
Is any of them going to make it? Are some of them going to make it through these latest challenges? That's uh, a source of tension in, in the story. Are they going to make it? Well, and I think, Ned, you know, it's like both of us are older and, you know, you can't live life and not wonder that at times, either seeing it in someone else or in our own lives, are we going to make it through? And that's why I think when we're, we have that creative process like you've had with the novel, that it's also talking about our lived experience as human beings and how we're touched not only by our own stories, but by those people that we knock into and and mm-hmm. they share their stories with us. And knowing that you have been a, a storyteller probably since you were a little one. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you comment on, I guess I, I'm curious about what these three characters are choosing one about what they taught you as you were going through the experience of writing about them. What they taught me. Um, I think uh, you could say, to put it in, in terms that your listeners would be familiar with that it taught me something about resiliency uh, because uh, I didn't think of that particular word as a character description, as a description of, of what they're going through. The word that I had was anchor. I, I thought of these, these three individuals as having very different kinds of things that they use to anchor themselves and uh, to get them through life's storms. Uh, and that's another way of saying resiliency. Uh, uh, what kind of hope, what capacity for hope do they have? And what, what affects that? And that's, that's where, um, as I said before we started the show, I was looking so much looking forward to this get-together because um, I see such a connection between the work that you do, your whole model of intervention in the lives of people who are uh, dealing with traumatic background, traumatic yeah. history, uh, either recently or way in the back, even buried in the back. Uh, very similar to what's going on in this novel. And, um, and I think you're absolutely, you know, there, that you're right in the question. I love the way you, you phrased it, the capacity of hope, because I think that if we lose our hope in my own personal opinion, that's losing a lot of our, what I would say, what drives us, our meaning and purpose of how we continue in our life in spite of the tragedies that touch us. So I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit more about that theme Mm -hmm. when we come back from the break um, and explore that, how kind of that idea is threaded through these relationships of these three people that have been brought together through your amazing imagination, from your lived experience, I would say, from what you're sharing with us. Um, and all those, those things that we can learn, you know, people say, well, what does a novel have to do with my life? You can have everything to do with your life, especially when you resonate with a character that goes, gosh, that's a lot like me. I've wondered that. Could I find that hope again when hope has seemed um, elusive or that mm-hmm. we be so deep in the weeds of other things that we don't see it. So we will be back in just a couple of minutes and continue this wonderful conversation with Ned Backus about his book, Mortal Things. And we will also tell you after the break, how you can get a hold of Mortal Things to read yourself. And also he is going to give us his, his um, uh, 
how to get in touch with him if you want to com communicate with Ned about his wonderful ideas. So we'll be back in just a few minutes and we will continue this conversation. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. This is Elaine miller Karras, and I'm with the author, Ned Bacchus, who is really sharing his wonderful um, book with us called Mortal Things. And we're learning about the characters. And a, a thought came to me as we were at break and I mentioned it to Ned. I said, well, you know, Ned, what would you think each character would want us to know about them? What would they want our audience to know about their journey? And you had a really wonderful first response to that. You want to go ahead and start, Ned? Well, I, I said, Jesus, only one of the three who would be comfortable uh, taking on a question like that. The other two would be, you know, well, one of them would be sullen and, and pretty uh, quiet. It just avoid it. And uh, the other would be uh, maybe snarky and funny, but not reveal very much. Only one of the characters who, you know, I think once you start reading the book, you'd, you'd be clear on which one that would be. So we're not going to say who that is right now. No, right? I'll, I'll let 
Well, just let the reader do that because that's that's our teaser to go out and buy the book, Mortal Things. Again, I'm going to say the name. But, you know, I think I was I was saying to um, to Ned, but isn't that like many of us um, that we've had that experience that there are some things that we might be able to respond to? Well, I would like Ned to know this about me, but oh, I'm not going to tell him about that part of me or that mm-hmm. part of me. That's in my head. And maybe he wouldn't think much of me if he knew that. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think that those are those are um, different aspects that could be of one person that may be expressed with three different people in terms of how they might interact with their world. But that to me is so amazingly human. And I how think, I'm go sorry, go ahead. No, go. So I, please comment. Yes. I think all of us have that experience, no matter how uh, how garrulous we are, how much we love to talk. We don't always love to talk. There are there are there are moments when the most talkative of us will absolutely just pull back and not show much. Uh, so we all have that experience, and uh, yet when we do, often we tell stories, and the book is very much about the stories that these people carry with them. So let me ask you this, what, when they, it's about the stories that they carry with them, but when they tell us the story, are they telling us about those private parts of them that they would not share out loud, but they would think about? It depends on whom they're with and how much they'll show. The conversations between the two men are different than the ones between either of them and Sarah. And you think that has to do with gender or does that have to do with personality or both? Both, absolutely both. I mean, that's, that's something that it, it transcends gender, but gender absolutely factors into it. Um, they, uh, the guys are just, they don't, they don't roll that way. And this is also set in 1989. So it's a somewhat different social world in which they have come up. And um, they, they're, they're not like people you would find today, especially Dominic, of course, because he's 75 at that point and uh, is a product of a very different world. And, and his, the way he anchors himself, this, the way he tries to keep himself going forward, uh, this is very different from the other two. Well, can and, we talk a little bit about the anchors? Because I think that's that is a theme, right? So, what anchors yeah. each one of them, and why are anchors important? Well, uh, some of the things that hold Dominic together are his um, that enable him to to keep moving. His sense of humor, his ability to sort of out outthink or outwit some of the people around him. Um, to disarm them with his sarcastic, s- cynical approach at times, and um, and all, but then on the other hand, he's also grounded in his religious faith. He is what you would call a cradle Catholic. He grew up very different era, very much Catholic. However, he he he's got his own. In addition to that, uh, operating at the same time. He's got his, he's invented his own little sort of personal voodoo ritual. Ritual plays a role for all of them. And, um, and he's got a little ritual that is 
uh, on the surface about baseball and uh, a significant loss to the home team 25 years prior to the action of the novel. And it's something Mike understands because he was a little boy. He was a young boy. He was like 14 at the time. So he lived through that and it was, you know, he was aware of it, but he's, he's moved on. He's not a fan, but for Dominic, he, that's part of how he sees the world. So he uses that to try to understand. The problem is some of the anchors that these characters use, <laughs> excuse me, are, um, they're very limited and they're sort of traps. They represent, uh, a sort of a way to get by without getting forward. And <laughs> I'm going to have to drink a little water here. Please do it. I, I mean, I think that any of us can get stuck <laughs> by our lived experience. And sometimes mm -hmm. our silence and not having <laughs> relationship yeah. with others can get us in the way when we avoid, right, talking about these deep so mm -hmm. sorrows and suffering that we have. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I wanted to, to mention was I remember hearing, learning at some point um, a long time ago that one way of understanding the book called Dubliners by James Joyce, which is a, a series of short stories that are all about people in Dublin. And one way of looking at it is to see them, see all the main characters as in some way paralyzed they're emotionally paralyzed or stuck <clears throat> and that made a lot of sense to me and um i think you could apply that to this book and to lots of other books so do you and, think part of like living life that is about how we may make attempts to get unstuck mm -hmm. be able to be able to go forward if we're able to do that I think people want to be unstuck if they if they indeed grasp that they are stuck. They may not. They may think this is just all there is. Um, this is what you can expect. And just that's it. Just keep going. Well, and I guess I was um, talking to you before the show started and, and about um, about grief. Mm -hmm. And I had spoken to a few people from Nashville um, today that are very much dealing with the grief of uh, the loss of three children's lives and three um, people who worked at a school in Nashville. And, you know, I was saying to you that I think one of the hardest losses is getting over the death of a child. And one of the main characters uh, you talk about is has lost not only his child, but his wife. I don't know if you mm -hmm. could say a little bit about whether you agree with me about that or not. And you know, I think grief is such a big topic right now, as I said in the onset of the show. Oh, it is. It is. And, the, and that I'll take that as a cue to maybe read a little bit from the Please. novel. Um, just to give you a taste of each character and maybe a sense of how the, in each instance that person is uh, trying to anchor himself or herself and um, find some kind of resiliency. So first I will read from the prologue, sir. Oh yeah. Um, 
I think it's helpful to hear those words that come from those that, you know, in terms of their process Mm -hmm. and what they're going through, how they build their resiliency or their, their capacity to be well, again, if possible. Because when people are stuck, I think there's that feeling like, well, nothing will ever change. I will always be this way. These three characters are dealing with a number of historical trauma in their lives. But they also, in the course of the story, are traumatized. And the, the, the interrelationships that they have can either contribute to their ability to be resilient or can counter that. And here are the very first words of the novel. This is the prologue. The apartment looked like nothing happened. A hard run along the Wissahickon might offer the best possibility of doing something with the seething mixture of fear, disgust, and anger that had gripped her since she double locked the door. But Sarah Goins would not leave the apartment to run or to do anything. Tomorrow would be soon enough. The son of a bitch was not coming back. With a fresh, damp cloth, she wiped off the living room baseboard, then stretched her sore back and neck. She dusted the two library biographies about Mary Cassatt and the book of baby names, then returned them to the shiny coffee table. Using the corner of an old pajama top, she gave the TV screen a soft wipe, amazed, as always, at how quickly dust gathered. If he hadn't turned and bolted, she would have killed him somehow. She was sure she would have found the strength, like one of those mothers lifting a car to save a pinned child. So she's just suffered a home invasion, and she's trying to to deal with that. Then in chapter one, which really starts the the action of the novel, Tom, uh, she takes her. She finally gets her her boyfriend Mike to agree after a year of dating to meet some of her friends from work. It means a lot to her, and he goes along with this. But he's he's not he, happy about it. <laughs> he's not happy. Yeah, and he's listening to this to this couple. The one is a teacher. The other is, is is a professional of some sort. They asked him more questions about his experience at the college and seemed genuinely interested. But when the conversation turned to cats, he felt his chest tightening. Leona and Tom didn't have children, they had cats. Were all college professors cat people? He failed the cat test. He didn't hate cats, but they were so different from dogs. Wiscasset has some sort of flu, Leona said. The vet doesn't seem to know what to do. She shook her head. The poor guy knows what's in store for him when our car pulls up to the vet's office, Tom said. He just knows. I make Tom take him, she said, looking up from the odd-looking mushrooms on her cutting board. She brushed the hair from her eyes. I'm not proud to admit that, but it's true. I don't particularly enjoy it, Tom said with a pained expression. He was going on about a trip to the vet, but he might have been talking about watching the nurses do heel sticks on his premature newborn in the NICU. What good would it tell this guy to get a grip? He was as likely to tell him about losing Laurie and little Michael. Mike took a pull on the beer. He might not need a passport to enter a center city high-rise apartment, but was there a guidebook? But now that the conversation had turned his thoughts to the two people he loved more than anything in the world, he wasn't sure he cared. Standing at the stove below the two large walks hanging from an iron rack, 
Larry lined up bowls of chicken pieces, shrimp, and scallops next to him. Mike watched him place metal rings on the two front burners, set the two walks on them, then turn on the gas under each unit. Did those rings have a name? Do you buy them in Chinatown? He held his tongue. The worst moment in his English class had been when Mrs. Ms. Devereaux made him read aloud part of his essay. She'd wanted others to hear a good introduction. Now he took a deep breath and tried to focus on what people were saying, but instead he pictured himself rushing through the ER entrance in upstate New York, remembered knowing what the young doctor was about to tell him just from the look on his face. Well, you know, as you're as I hear the words from from your novel, Ned, I'm I'm just struck about how, in so many ways, we've lost the rituals in our society that used to be able to help us mm. understand when someone was raw and grieving. I, mm-hmm. um, I shared with you that you know, as a young woman, uh, my mother was from El Salvador, and I went there when I was 18, and. I was related to everyone in this little village called Atikisaya, and a lot of people were dying. I didn't know them, but I was part of the family. And so I had to wear either black or white. Young people were allowed to wear white. And But I realized at the time I was thinking, oh my goodness, but now I look back to it, I said, how wise that was, that when people were wearing black, you knew that they were raw, that they had gone through mm-hmm. something. It wouldn't be that you would talk about something, I would say, not to say that... Um, having a pet being ill is trivial because I know there's many, you know, animal lovers, but when you think of losing a child and from the perspective that you just um, read to us, it's very clear that this was not someone he thought he could be connected to in any way from his experience of having lost his child. And how many times does that happen in life that we don't know the suffering of the person in front of us And if we did, that maybe we would treat them a little bit more gently or watch our words a little bit to soften something that we may say. And and so that's another reason why I think you're illuminating something in this character that Mm -hmm. happens to many people. So go ahead, continue. Well, let me read you just a little bit um, from another scene. This is the same Sarah, the, the young woman that we met in the very first reading and who's accompanying Mike at this experience. He eventually mentions to her that he's met this elderly man. He helped him out, patched him up, very crusty exterior verbally and behaviorally from the old man, but they kind of grudgingly come together and start helping each other. They can sense that each other, each of them has some similar kinds of wounds, even though they're not the same. And they're certainly not from the same generation. And she keeps mentioning this guy. And this is, you know, what she learns from him sounds, it sounds like he's this old guy, whoever he is, already knows more about Mike than she does. He's, and that just rubs her the wrong way. She picks up the phone and calls the barbershop and gets through to him. And they have a very awkward phone call because he doesn't know what to make of this. And uh, he's in front of all the other barber, you know, the other barber and the cronies in the barbershop. And it just it's just too weird. So subsequent to that, she's in her office. Now, she has recently experienced a, a getting herself in the middle of a brawl that she had to break up. Mm-hmm. And it was very traumatic. She's back. She's 
in her she's in her lunch now uh, at her at her at her desk in the in her college office and 54 here we go uh, it's not 54 so she's she's going to be expressing her her experience with all of this yeah and he uh, <laughs> no I'm not finding it well, you know, I think that, you know, I guess I just, until you find it, that I think what happens to all of us, right? There are times when you're going, you shared that with that person and you didn't share that with me, is that there are, there are these kind of zones that happen between our, between ourselves and our interpersonal relationships that often acts as a, as a, a bridge or a segue for us to sometimes, and I, you hear this, right? That I could tell a stranger something that I couldn't tell someone who I was the closest to. And there's something about that distance that makes it possible. But if the person finds out that that didn't happen, then that can feel like, well, what's wrong with our relationship? That you could share this with a stranger mm -hmm. and, and not share it with me, right? That becomes that. I don't know if that's- what I'm Yeah, that, that's absolutely part of the dynamic, that sort of, of thing. Storytelling is very much a part of this and and storytelling is very much a part of all of your work i know from uh listening to your program um it's an essential element and it's it is a big part of what makes us human and it's as you were suggesting we've lost so much in our culture in terms of that which holds us together and i think during the course of the story of this novel, the uh, the characters have their moments where they they feel like, hmm, I think I'm I'm connecting here. This is this is a it's a friendship, but it's almost a family, and that was something I increasingly thought of as I worked on this book. That it really is a book about the families that we choose, as well as the families that we're given. And the uh, the guys in the barbershop become a family to Dominic. And then ultimately they become basically a family to, to Mike and separately to Sarah as the relationships develop. Well, and I'm just struck by how do you recreate your life, right? When you lose your in entire nuclear family and mm -hmm. no longer have your child or your wife. Right. And we don't know the kinds of relationships that sometimes can happen serendipitously that end up maybe being some of the more important relationships of our life. Mm -hmm. And do you think that was part of the dynamic that happened between the three of them in this particular, in, 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 in your novel? Oh, I think I do. I think so. It's, uh, yeah, it's, there are so many different, I mean, there are many things we could talk about, um, uh, and you, and you've mentioned grief, and uh, maybe this would be a time when I should. Uh, yeah, you would actually like yes. me to read that one section. Would you please read that section? We only have a we only have a few minutes left, and I want right. to make sure that we get that because I was saying to um, Ned that just the the importance of of being able to acknowledge someone's grief, to be with them, and also sometimes people learn new insights about about grief. Like I've learned that we will always grieve if we lose a child because children are a part of us 
And I, you shared with me, Ned, that someone who had interviewed you actually had shared that this particular passage that you'll share with us right now was very meaningful for her after the death of her husband. So please, please read. Okay. Uh, without giving away too much. After mobbing him, they ran to her and hugged her. The tightness gave away to a feeling of sadness, but that too passed quickly. He had proven right about healing. Pain didn't live with you every minute of every day. It visited. You became familiar with the visitor's habits. Pain didn't leave forever, but you could bid goodbye to the false hope that it would. She could not imagine doing that alone. Yeah. That is such a beautiful passage, Ned. Thank you for sharing that you know, with us, you know, I, um, one of the things that we do in the world um, that I've spent a lot of my life doing is helping people understand the sensations. And you just said the tightness then went to something else as she was hugged. And I, we know that that human contact is so important. When we're grieving, sometimes it's that touch that makes all the difference in the world of letting someone know, I'm here, I'm with you, I love you, I care for you. So thank you for that passage. Um, I think it might become one of my favorite passages too. So we just have, if there's, is there any parting comment that you would like to say to our audience that may be grieving or something that you want to say to them about maybe inspiring them to read the book, if you could do that in a minute or less? Well, um, I hope you'll take a look at the book because I think regardless of where you grew up or where you are now, I, I think you'll find the universal experience in any one particular, uh, it can be in any one particular place and in, in time, moment in time. And uh, that's what I hope that people will get from this is a sense that, geez, I, I get these people. I, I feel for them. Um, I, so, I feel like I know them. Okay. And, so again, the book is Mortal Thoughts. They mortal can Things. Mortal Things, rather. Mortal Things. And they can get it at Amazon, I imagine, yeah. other booksellers as and well. I welcome people to, to look at my website, which is nedbacchus.com, N-E-D-B-A-C-H-U-S. And, uh, and I welcome people to email me with any questions or thoughts at uh, nedbacchus at gmail. And I've uh, really enjoyed making connections with, with people through the, through the book. It's been a great experience. Well, thank you so much, Ned. Again, um, we want people to pick up the, um, the book, Mortal Things. And I want to say as well, I think it's another example. We often talk about it on the show is what else is true, that we can go through many hardships in life. And yet it's from that interconnectedness with human beings that sometimes we find different pathways, even with the relationships that are, that are, that are not, that are messy. Mm -hmm. um, there's all oftentimes pass, 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 passageways to healing. So again, Ned, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your wisdom. And um, to my, to my audience, I just like to say, thank you for being here. And please, as you go through your life today, try to find one, Thing in your life that might be hopeful, that might yeah. give you some meaning or purpose, even if you're feeling a little bit down today, that there may be one thing. Or pick up Ned's book. I think <laughs> it might give some, some ways to journey through some difficult times. And that's what novels and creativity does. Um, it may not be our own experience, someone else's experience that is expressed in a story might help us find our way. 
So until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller-Karras signing off for Resiliency Within. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. 